Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jean Lee from the University of Arizona. Today we're drawn by Dr. John Trapagan and his new book, The Blood of Gutoku, A Jack Ridley Mystery in Japan. It was published by Belaster Press this year. John is an anthropologist studying and teaching about culture, religion, and ruralities in Japan at the University of Texas, Austin. This book is actually a novel, something we don't see very often on our Japanese studies channel, but John has a good reason for it. So, John, how about we start by talking about your choice of publishing your research results in the form of a novel? Well, thank you. And thank you for having me on the channel. I'm, I'm looking very forward to our conversation. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Uh, I think uh, part of the reason I chose to do this is because I, I'm bored with academic publishing. Uh, it's just the same thing kind of over and over again. And I've been doing it for 30 years. And so I wanted to try something different, something that would be a little bit more challenging. But there are also uh, some academic reasons for what I chose to do with this. Um, One of the things that I think as an ethnographer, one of the things you you find is that when you're writing up your, your, you know, research, there are always these moments where you think, you know, am I just making this up or is this really what happened here? Because you are telling a story. It's, it's, you know, you're describing the people and the place, but it's all being filtered through my eyes and my thinking. And I try to have the voices of my interlocutors, you know, come through in my writing, but it's still me picking what matters. And so I I thought, well, rather than worrying about that, why don't I just write fiction and see what happens? And so uh, I think ethnography kind of lives at the intersection of fiction and nonfiction. I don't think it's it's, um, overtly one or the other. And I decided to just pull this all the way over into the side of fiction um, and see if I could write something ethnographic, but write it around a story that's fiction. So the the content, almost everything in it is right out of my field notes with some exceptions. Um, but the story, of course, is something I just made up. And, and um, the other thing that motivated me with this is that, you know, increasingly over the last 20 years, 30 years, ethnographic work has become very theoretical. It's very difficult for undergraduates to wade through um, a lot of it's really boring and tedious. Um, and, you know, I look at old ethnographies and some of them are just a lot of fun to read. You really learn a lot about another place and, and they're accessible. And a lot of what's written today is not very accessible. And so I wanted to write something that, um, you know, undergraduates could use, just anybody interested in Japan could use and learn more than just, you know, a travel log, something that's got more depth to it. Um, but, you know, place it in that framework of fiction to make it a little bit more interesting to work through and read and, and get what one can get out of it. So that that's really, those are the things that kind of pushed me to give this a try. That makes sense. And I guess it's quite a luxury to to be able to say that you got bored of academia after spending 30 years, considering I haven't even really stepped my foot in it. But well, I'm old. <laughs> Now, with this novel, you can add another title of novelist, um, novel writer, and more than just an anthropologist. 
So what else intrigues you? I understand you have a lot of other interests. Yes, I have a very short attention span, which has always been one of my problems. And so uh, I tend to flit from topic to topic. Um, very broadly, I've been interested in the intersection of culture, religion, and science throughout my career. All three of those things have been interesting to me. I was trained as a medical anthropologist at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, my early work all dealt with the cultural construction of senile dementia in Japan. Uh, I also looked at um, elder suicide and, and some other topics. And then I don't know, around 15 years ago, I, again, probably because I was getting a little bit bored, I, I decided to pursue something completely different. Um, I grew up in the 1960s in the uh, era of Star Trek and uh, the Apollo space program. And um, I've always been in love with the idea of space exploration. And so I, I was reading some things and, and found myself intrigued with um, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And, you know, you've got a, a, there are a group of astronomers who are, you know, listening to the heavens, hoping that ET will contact us and ET never contacts us. So maybe ET's not there, who knows. But, um, but from my perspective, I was interested in kind of a, as a, a, a form of cultural production and as a, a, a sort of representation of ideals about humanity and, and life. I got interested in how these astronomers and others sort of conceptualized what they were doing. Uh, and out of that, I kind of developed a, another whole research strain that looks at the culture and ethics of space exploration and uh, have been pretty involved in that over the last several years. Um, uh, I've done things, you know, looking at kind of how, uh, in some ways, the cert that, that search for extraterrestrial intelligence SETI has similarities with religion. Uh, and I've also uh, done some work related to questions like, you know, what are the ethical questions around colonizing Mars and that kind of stuff. So uh, all of it somehow in my head, all of these things come together um, and are, are related, but but it does look kind of like I have two very distinct streams of research over the course of my career. That's wonderful. And let's not forget, you're also a co-host for the New Books Network, and you're also active on many channels. So what channels do you co-host for? Oh, yeah, well, I I, uh, I primarily got involved with this through the Science, Technology, and Society channel, uh, and have done quite a few books for for that channel, and then uh, the East Asia channel and, and the Japanese Studies channel, of course, are areas where I've I've done things, and so um, I, I find the New Books Network to be just a wonderful project, and and you know a great way to really explore all of the wonderful writing that's going on these days. I totally agree. Mm. Now, in the introduction of the novel, you mentioned that this book, this novel, is the fruit of your anthropologist research. Can you tell us more about your research project? Yeah, well, um, so as I said, I started out doing work on um, how people think about the onset of, of cognitive decline in old age in Japan as a cultural category, not as a as just a disease category, although that was certainly part of it. Um, and along with that, I became, uh, it was almost unavoidable that I would become uh, interested in looking at issues related to population decline in rural areas. Uh, Japan, of course, is undergoing a, a rather um, complex and interesting process right now as their population is shrinking. Um, and 
it, it's the, the rural areas where I do my research are at the leading edge of this. So the town where I do my research, I think right now about 35% of the population is over 65. And um, that will be over 50% in a few years. And so, you know, you think about that and, you know, one in every three people you meet is over 65. Um, and so uh, as I, you know, I continued doing work on that, I got interested in, in, uh, religion and and how older people kind of engage in religious practice to sort of how it intersects with ideas about well-being. Uh, I wound up writing a book about that. And then um, most recently, I there, there's been a lot of talk about sort of decline in, in the population and decline in rural areas. And it never looked like that to me. I mean, it's obvious that the, the population is shrinking. But I see a great deal of vitality and a, and a lot of creativity in what people are, are trying to sort of invent and create to make their world sustainable in, in rural areas. And so a few years ago, I got interested in a, a study of um, entrepreneurs in rural Japan. And it, it started around a question of um, why would you go start a business in a place that's losing population? <laughs> And, um, and the answers to that turned out to be quite interesting. There were things like looking for self-fulfillment, looking to do something meaningful, uh, wanting to move, you know, back to an area that had a slower pace, ideas like that. Um, and, you know, most of my, my recent research related to Japan has been um, focused on that. The research that's behind the novel takes all of that into account. Basically, what I did was I mined my field notes really right from the beginning of my doing field work and, and used the, the, the stories, the people, the ideas and things that run through my field notes as a basis for creating a structure for the, the novel. And so in, in a sense, the novel kinds of bring, in some ways brings together my research over the course of now almost 30 years. Uh, so that that's it, in a sense, it, it's many different projects that are sort of floating around in that. Wow. So did you mean your field notes from the entire 30 years of your research? Well, I didn't use them all, of course, but but I, I, I basically went through different aspects of my field notes to build the characters. So the um, all of the Japanese characters are real people in the book. Uh, sometimes they're composites of a few different people. Uh, sometimes they're very much just, you know, actual people I know. And of course, their names are changed and I, I do things to try to, you know, cover their identities. But um, but these are, you know, actual people that I've interacted with and, and, and their, you know, stories about them are in my field notes, experiences that I've had with them. And so I drew on that as a basis for both describing the people and the place and, and also talking about some of the stories that are that arise in the course of the um, try to, um, you know, build a story out of my field notes. Now, field notes, you know, I mean, I have vast amounts of field notes. I probably have 3000 pages of typed field notes. Um, and so, you know, I'm picking and choosing things as I work through that. That's wonderful. And could you give us an overview without too much spoiler of the plot of the novel? Yeah, so it um, it follows the main character, Jack Ridley, who's an anthropologist. Um, uh, it actually starts in the United States. He's a, a professor at Yale, and um, it starts with him at his retirement dinner. And 
that's a sort of a sub theme that runs through the story is, is Jack, as he's thinking about this transition that happens as you move from having a career to being retired and, and sort of the, the basis of your life changes. And, and this comes out of my research because I talked to a lot of people about this when I was doing work on, on aging in Japan and that transition can be quite difficult for some people. And so I wanted to use that as a way to explore that, that side of things um, a little bit. And then he moves to Japan. His wife is Japanese. And so he moves to Japan because she wants to get out of the United States, which is quite understandable. And um, uh, remember, this was written in part, I guess, well, it was still written maybe when Trump was president. Um, But, um, but it, it, you you know, he goes there and, and they've set up their house in, in, in this little village. And it, it gets into kind of his life of adjustment to this place again after having not been there for a while. But then um, what I, I wanted to do with this is create a story that would get into the head of the ethnographer a little bit. And from my perspective, an ethnographer is kind of a detective. You're, you're solving puzzles. You're trying to make sense out of what's going on around you. So I decided to uh, have a have it be a murder mystery. And so he encounters the murder. I, I don't want to go into too much about that side of things. Uh, it explores a little bit of his friendship with uh, a local Buddhist monk um, and and then kind of works through the process of, of solving the mystery, but also working through that in relation to Japanese culture and understanding rural culture and, and this sort of thing. So um, that that's really how the book is is kind of structured um, as a as a story, and so you know the the mystery. Uh, if you're an ethnographer, you, you're, you're interested in solving myth- mysteries, and so all I did was said, well, let's make it a real mystery, you know, kind of a murder mystery type mystery, and and then then you can kind of follow that process. So is it safe to assume that this Jack Ridley figure is uh, based on you, or at least a part of you? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty safe to say. Uh, <laughs> it's not all me, but what I was trying to accomplish with the character is to give the reader something of a window into the mind of an ethnographer. And there's only one ethnographer's mind I actually know, and that's my own. And so um, what I what I did was I, I built it kind of around my own experiences. Um, and And, you know, some of the things are very much, I mean, my wife is Japanese, um, and I do, you know, both of my children kind of show up in there very briefly. Um, and so, you know, there are things from my life that are, are, are very much a part of it. But then, you know, I haven't run into any murders when I've been in Japan. And so, um, you know, that, that part of it's very much not real. But the character is, is in many ways sort of structured around aspects of my own experience and personality, I would say. Okay, that's uh, that's uh, one thing I was really curious about was the the thrilling parts, the the murders. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, how did you came up? How did you come up with these murder plots um, based on your field notes, or how does how do they relate to um, actual events that happened during your research? Yeah. Um... So the objects that are used in the murder are all real objects. They're, they're things that I have encountered. Um, and again, I don't want to you know, go too much detail into it because it might spoil it. But, um, but all, all of that is, is 
you know, I've, I've basically taken the material culture that I've experienced as I've done ethnography there and tried to work that into the way in which the, the murders happen. Um, and it does, uh, the, the, you know, the mode of, of, of murder, for example, uh, reflects things that happen in Japan. And so I was trying to, you know, capture some of those types of things. Um, the, um, I think I lost track of my, my thinking on this a little bit, but it's, um, the, 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 the structure of the story itself is kind of, uh, uh, there are a lot of things that happen in it that really have happened to me. Let's put it that way. Um, even though they have no relationship to a murder or anything like that. But, um, and, and a lot of the sort of backstory surrounding um, the questions of who the murderer is, that stuff's real. Um, there, there are real things going on there. And so, um, you know, for example, uh, the, the Jehovah's Witness show up. Uh, that actually is all very real. Uh, the village I lived in when I was doing my dissertation field work, there was a Jehovah's Witness meeting house in the middle of it. It was very strange because that's not something you expect to find in rural Japan. Um, but there was an old empty house there and they had rented that out, I guess. And um, and they would come by to my door quite often uh, because, well, they, they were intrigued with me because as an American, they would come and they would say, Oh, you're from a Christian country. Don't you want to come and join us? And and I would talk to them a bit and then say, uh, well, I'm kind of busy. Um, but, you know, there was this kind of, uh, it was a really intriguing group of people in a sense, because they were uh, rather atypical of most of the people that I would run across in my, my field work. And so they show up in the novel and, and, and they're there because I really experienced that and experienced their interactions when I was doing field work in the 1990s. That's fascinating. And I especially liked the part about uh, this ritual of kakushinenbutsu or, or kakurenenbutsu. Can you tell us what it is and what its historical background is? And what does it have to do with Jehovah's Witnesses? Hmm. Uh, not much to do with Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, except the way that I sort of weave them together in the story. In, in that sense, they're really separate things. But um, but Kakushinembutsu uh, is a um, it's a ritual that was done throughout that area uh, for a long time. I don't know how far back it goes. I'm, I'm not a historian, so I've never really tried to explore the depth of, of how long it's been around. But um, most of the older people that I've spoken with went through it when they were children. And, and it was a ritual that happened, I think, around five years old or so, maybe a little older, um, in which they would uh, put the children in a room uh, where uh, they, they blacked out all the windows with curtains. And um, then the leader would bring a candle around and put it right in front of the face of each child. And um, the child... Uh, if the child would like cry or get upset, then they failed. And um, the purpose of all this, it, it, it's, it's uh, kakushi means hidden or kakure means hidden or secret. Um, and this was done originally at a time when um, Zen temples dominated the area. And the Nembutsu is associated with um, Shin Buddhism. 
And that was done underground because they weren't supposed to do that. So this is hundreds of years ago. And so they did it in secret. Um, and it was basically an initiation into being a member of the cult of the blood of Gutoku, um, which means foolish bald-headed one, which refers to Shinran, who was um, one of the, the great uh, thinkers of Japanese Buddhism and, and, and the founder of Jodo Shinshu. And so um, the, the practice itself is now largely gone. Um, I think there are, there are still a few places where it may happen. Younger parents didn't want their children going through that following World War II. They, they thought it was kind of brutal. Um, and also with the decline in the number of children, that has made it harder and harder to carry on rituals like that. And so the last time I talked to anybody about it was probably in the early 2000s. And um, I remember the guy I was talking to whose brother was the head of, of one group said it was dying out because the combination of not enough children and not much interest on the part of parents. So I, I think if it's not completely gone now, it, it probably won't be around that much longer. So would you consider aging as one of the most important factors that it's slowly dying out? Well, yes. I, I, I mean, um, the, the process of change going on in, in Japan in general and rural Japan in particular is very much tied with the demographics. And you've got a very uh, aged population at this point in time. And of course, they have memories of this, but they're not going to be around that much longer. And so with them will go the memories of this since younger generations haven't really been too engaged in it. Only a few people have. And so I think that's that's contributing to this change is that you just aren't going to, you know, there, I think there are still pockets where it's where it happens, um, but it may also turn into something like um, other rituals have in Japan, where it becomes more of a um, kind of a heritage and folk tradition type thing uh, rather than an actual initiation ritual, which is what it what it was until, you know, maybe 20 years ago. Now, how rural was this area um, that you were studying about? And how rural, let's say, how different is it in the novel comparing to your where you did your fieldwork? Well, uh, the place is where I did my fieldwork. And so it, it's the same. Um, it uh, To describe it, rural is a very hard word to use in, in Japan. Um, Japan is, in essence, an urban society. Uh, and, you know, so uh, this is a place that's, several hundred kilometers north of Tokyo. Um, it is an agricultural area. It's characterized by rice farming and also dairy farming. Um, and, but, but the thing is that you, you've got, you know, people, younger people, and by what I mean, people maybe 60 and down, um, and even some older than that, are actually quite cosmopolitan. Many of them have traveled to other parts of the world. Um, they you know, have lived in, in maybe in Tokyo or some other big city in Japan. Um, so it's it's got this kind of cosmopolitan aspect to it. Uh, at the same time, it retains some of what are, you know, conceptualized as traditional values. It, that's, I think, a kind of comp, can of worms because what, what exactly is traditional? But, um, but certainly they try to retain a feel of, of rusticness, if you want to put it that way. Um, and, and but it's a very complicated place, and and um, it was that way when I was there uh, in the 1990s, and again in the early 2000s. And I, I've I've been back every summer 
basically since, except during the pandemic. Um, and um, so it's, you know, to kind of answer that, how rural is it? It's actually a very hard, it's a very difficult question to answer because it, it, it has aspects to it that feel very rural and then other aspects that feel very cosmopolitan. And, and so it's a, I, I actually view it as kind of a hybrid space where it's, it's really kind of neither exactly rustic nor cosmopolitan. It's both at the same time. Um, but in the mind of Japanese, it's very rural. Uh, most most people in Japan would look at it as as one of the most sort of r- rural places um, in Japan. It's it's t- the Tohoku region is the upper six prefectures on the main island of Honshu, and and they are typically perceived of as being kind of ultra rural in in the you know kind of public discourse on what Japan is, uh, even though that that's a little too simplistic, but that's how they are often viewed. That's a great point. And when you were there um, observing them, other than Kakushinembutsu, and we, we also mentioned uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, what other kinds of, I guess, religious practices did you observe that um, may be a unique um, characteristic of rural areas? Well, um, it's a little hard for me to answer because I've never really done much research in an urban area. Um, but there are so Kakushi Nembutsu is also kind of tied to just the Nembutsu, which is something that uh, gets done uh, when someone dies. They they have the funeral, um, and then the the night of the funeral, they they do the Nembutsu where they they um, it's done a few different ways. But in the village where I've done most of my research, they have this um, huge set of um, Buddhist prayer beads. Uh, normally, they they just go around your hands. Uh, these are big enough to go around an entire room, and they pass these around in their hands as they're chanting "Namu Amida Butsu," and they do that for like twenty minutes. And the purpose of that is to um, help the deceased on wherever they're going to go. Uh, people are generally in Japan not very precise about the afterlife. They they either don't think there's anything much or they kind of shrug their shoulders and go, I don't know, maybe you go somewhere, but they, they don't spend a lot of time really worrying about what the afterlife is, but whatever it might be, there's sort of a sense that it's a journey. And um, so this, this Nembutsu uh, practice is, is it's, it's a cult in the um, academic sense of the term that it's a non-institutionalized religious activity um, that that is organized in a way, but it's not tied to any any religion, and it's organized at the village level. And um, and I participated in that when I've been doing field work. Uh, actually, I had a very interesting experience with it because um, I had learned about it, and so I started asking people about it. And they said, "Well, um, you know, we would uh, we, we'd love to have you uh, come and observe it." And I said, "Oh, great! You know, can I videotape it?" Sure. And so they set it all up to do this. Now, there hadn't been a funeral. Um, and they uh, went to the local meeting house in the center of the village and they did the, the ritual. And then we had a big kind of feast afterwards. And all we all drank beer and did stuff that you do in Japan. And I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, and I recorded it. And then a month or two later, someone died. And so they did the for real. In, in the second time, and it was, and this is, I think, one of the interesting things about doing ethnographic research, 
the real one didn't look anything like the staged one. For one thing, in the staged one, they weren't all wearing black, but in the real one, they were all wearing black clothing. And the atmosphere was totally different, and there's no food in the real one. And it was just this really fascinating sort of juxtaposition of representation of the ritual as a kind of um, spectacle in a way, a cultural spectacle, and then the actual ritual as it's being done in the context of the uh, people's experience. It actually got me in a little bit of trouble because um, when they went to do the ritual, uh, you know, there. So before I asked the head of it, I said, look, do you mind if I, you know, videotape this? And he said, why do you want to do that? You already videotaped the one we did. And I already had in my head that it probably wasn't going to look quite like the one that was done, that was staged for me. And I said, well, you know, I, I am collecting data here that that's, I'm an ethnographer. That's what I'm doing. And um, I'd like to videotape it. And he said, well, you're a member of the community. You should be down on the floor doing the ritual with us, representing your household. And uh, it put me in quite a bind. I was trying to figure out, well, what do I do? Do I, you know, collect my data or do I participate and how do I do this? And in the end, I decided to do the video um, and he was pissed off at me. Um, Later, uh, he and I talked and he said, yeah, sorry, I got annoyed. I I understand why you chose to do that. It it does look different. You're right. But at the time, when you're doing ethnographic research, there's this you know fascinating problem of your identity as the ethnographer and also your identity as, to some extent, a member of the community who's lived there a year, two years, something like that. And you're always kind of walking a tightrope about that. And, and it, it, this is similar to this kind of question about what's the line between fiction and nonfiction and ethnographic writing? Well, there's also this kind of question about what's the identity of the ethnographer and, and the book does explore that to some extent. I wanted to get a little bit into that because the, the ethnographer's identity is tied to the context and it's shifting and changing in relation to the people that you interact with. And so, um, you know, that, that studying something, you know, kind of something straightforward, like just wanting to do a video of a ritual that's being done can lead to a bunch of questions about the nature of one's identity as, a, as an anthropologist, as an ethnographer doing research. As I was listening to you, I started wondering why they staged the first one like they staged it. Like, is there a um, expected way to stage it or something? No, I don't think so. That's a good question. Um, I, I think it was because you know, when when you're doing ethnographic research, the the folks that you're trying to learn from often are just as interested in you as that you are in them. And, and as I had been there longer, they became interested in trying to help me learn about their culture too. So they wanted to do something. And of course you can't predict when somebody's going to die. So, you know, they wanted to make sure that I got to see that. Um, and it didn't occur to them at the time that the way it would be done in kind of the staged version would be different from the way it would be done when someone had actually passed on. Um, and like I said, this, this one guy who was the leader, he, he realized that afterwards he kind of was sort of, yeah, I, I kind of see what you mean about that. They're different. Um, but I think it was out of a genuine desire to make sure that I got the information I was looking for. I often had people do this in the field uh, where they would think of something they thought was important for me to know and make it a point that I got information about it. And so I think this is an example of that. They were trying to, um, 
in some ways anticipate my needs as a researcher, which interestingly enough is very, very typical in Japanese society where people try to anticipate the needs of others and think about the needs of others. And um, sometimes the anticipation doesn't quite go the way, you know, it, it doesn't quite capture what the other might have wanted it because you can't always know. And, and, you know, the example I often use about this is when I first started going to do research in Japan, I'd go to like a government office and someone would always bring out coffee with cream and sugar in it already. Well, I can't think of any way to ruin a cup of coffee more than to put sugar in it. That is just disgusting. But there was this kind of mindset, you know, if you're an American, you drink coffee with cream and sugar in it. And so they would want to sort of anticipate my need. And it was it was really very kind. Um, and what I've also noticed is that over the years, they stopped doing that. Now the cream and sugar come on the side. So somewhere along the way, people have recognized that, oh, maybe Americans don't drink coffee with their cream and sugar in it all the time. And so they adjusted things a little bit. Um, but I think it's a part of that same kind of anticipatory interest that you see in Japan, where, where people try to, you know, think ahead, have their antenna up for the needs of other people and respond to those before those needs are expressed. So I think that's why they, they actually did the, that the way they did. That's very interesting. Um, and now I'd like to turn to your process of writing this novel. Um, you know, since we don't come across a novel in academia every day. So how was the process like writing this novel? Um, I guess, what difficulties did you run into and what parts of it did you enjoy most? Yeah, Um so I should start by saying that I, I am I have a very strange approach to writing, um, and uh, I don't do what most people seem to do with writing. So, for example, I have never written an outline in my life. Um, I just sit down and start writing. That's how it works for me. Um, and this particular book, I started a few years ago, and then I got busy and just set it aside. And. The pandemic actually contributed to this because uh, I stopped having to drive to and from campus all the time. So I had more time. And then over the winter of, you know, kind of the winter break of 2020 into 2021, um, I was just home. I couldn't go anywhere or anything like that. So I thought, well, I'm going to go back to this project and, and see what I can do. And I just got absorbed by it. I found myself waking up at four o'clock in the morning with dialogue going through my head and, and I just get up and start writing. Um, and I, it got so intense. There was one weekend where I believe I wrote somewhere around 20,000 words, which is roughly a little less than a third of the book. I just couldn't stop writing. And um, which it was enormously fun to write. It was actually a lot more fun to write than typical academic writing. Um, there, there are some advantages to the using the the fiction approach. One advantage is, as my uh, doctoral dissertation advisor Keith Brown said when he when he read a draft of it, he, he said, you know, you're kind of released from having to worry about engaging the academic literature on this. You can just explore the topic, and. That's true. I didn't have to spend all sorts of time digging through other people's writing about everything because I'm just making a story. So um, I don't have to triangulate it with all the other stuff that's been written about rural Japan. And uh, that was in some ways kind of liberating because I, I could simply write what I think, period. And and um, 
that made it enormously fun to write. It was just, you know, intriguing. As I thought about the characters, it, it got to be a lot of fun. Um, and so um, a problem, <laughs> the biggest problem was finding a publisher. Um, writing it was kind of easy, but um, it's a strange book. It's it's not exactly an ethnography and not exactly not an ethnography. It is fiction, but it's fiction that that's very much grounded in, in, in a very real thing. And so, uh, I had a couple of publishers interested in it and, um, one was taking a very long time and, and they were approaching it more from the perspective of it being an ethnography, uh, but, a a, a sort of experimental ethnography. Um, I had quite a few publishers say, wow, this is a really fun book. I enjoyed reading it. Yeah, we don't do that. And so, you know, and, and I thought, okay, this is, this is very typical academia. Let's never do anything creative. Let's never push the boundaries of anything. We'll just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. This is one of the reasons I wrote the book. I wanted to get away from that. And uh, I had sent off a proposal to Belestier and, and I had more or less kind of given up. I, I was beginning to think, well, I don't know, maybe I'm going to, maybe I'll try like Kindle self-publishing or something like that. Cause I, I was, the, the one press that was interested was taking forever and I didn't know what was going to happen. And they sent me an email and said, we want to publish your book. And I was like, really? Okay. Uh, and, and as I got into talking with them, I was really delighted because they understood what I was trying to do. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I would say to <laughs> kind of aspiring novelists or really anybody who's aspiring to write, it is very important to find a publisher who understands the thing you're trying to accomplish in your writing um, because of course they have their own interests and, and that, that can be a challenge to find some, you know, a publisher that really gets it. So, um, so that was a challenge, but once that, uh, worked out, things were really smooth and, and went great. So, I mean, all in all, it was just a lot of fun to do this. That's great to hear. And that sounds so very different from academic writing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Now, now that you have experience with both, do you have a preference between the two? Oh, absolutely. I'd much prefer to write novels for the rest of my life, which is in fact pretty much what I plan to do. Uh, I'm, nice. I'm going to retire in a, you know, like three years. And so, um, I don't have any particular need to continue writing, uh, standard academic. I mean, I'll, I'll publish things I'm sure as, as stuff comes up that's interesting, but, um, I find this type of writing a lot more fun. And so I'd like to develop the skill and get better at it. Well, well, I'm very jealous of that. I wish I could just write 23,000 <laughs> words of my dissertation over one weekend or just uh, tell my advisor that I decide to not write a novel instead well, of a dissertation. <laughs> but see, here's an interesting question. Why, why can't you write a novel instead of a dissertation and build a novel around something that adds to knowledge? Why do we have to, in the academic world, be so confined by the, the conventions of the way we do things. And uh, I think from an intellectual perspective, we should be much more interested in finding ways to disrupt convention. And that's part of what, what I wanted to do with this is to find a way to disrupt convention when we think about ethnographic writing and think about writing about Japan. Um, and I, I think that's, um, I actually think it's kind of unfortunate that everything has become so formulaic. I mean, maybe it's been formulaic for a long time. But when I look at the way academic writing works, it's each different field has its own formula. And your job in graduate school is to learn the formula. And then you go off and you, re, you know, rinse, wash and repeat 12,000 times and then you retire. 
And that is not a recipe for creativity, in my view. And I think that's actually a very serious problem with the academic world. There's very little room for creativity. And how does um, your years of experience working in academia manifesting this novel? Um, we talked about this um, problem uh, with maybe a lack of encouragement of creativity. Uh, what else have you uh, in- injected into this novel from your 30 years of experience in academia? Unfortunately, some of my cynicism, I'm afraid, has been injected into it. Um, uh, it, it comes through here and there. Um, I, I think part of that it happens as Jack thinks about his retirement and, and thinks about his experience with colleagues over the years and that sort of thing. Uh, I've been very fortunate. I've had wonderful colleagues throughout most of my career. But um, but there, there, there are things in the academic world, and, and, and I did build these into Jack's character intentionally, um, that I, I find annoying at times. And, and one of those things is uh, the status hierarchies related to things like where you went to graduate school. Uh, I was fortunate. I, I went to an Ivy League school for my master's degree, but uh, I went to the University of Massachusetts at Lowell for my undergraduate degree. At the time, it was a commuter school. I got it absolutely stellar education there with professors, many of whom didn't even have PhDs at the time, but who were just superb teachers and really got me to think. And then I did my uh, PhD at, at Pitt, which is, is a state-related university, but you know it's not an Ivy League school. And uh, I have certainly at times found the, the status hierarchies in academia to be uh, both troubling and, and very pompous. And um, so I built that into his character. His he has a certain irritation and resistance to that, um, and I think there's an unwillingness of Jack to assume the kind of stereotypical academic persona, um, and I think that's actually a manifestation of my own resistance to academic snobbery. Um, and so you know that 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 was there. I'm I'm curious. What do you think? And you know, what did you think about Jack or or the no- novel in relation to that? What did what it, as someone reading about it uh, as an academic, how did you respond to that? I'd be very curious to know. I thought he was a very observant person. I mean, that's mm-hmm. definitely uh, some traits from his uh, ethnographic study background. But um, I suppose the way that we see things through how we see um, what was happening in the village with the murder murders mm-hmm. um and the ritual they were all through jack's view jack's right. perspective and that can only that kind of detailed um careful description can only come through with enough experience of ethnography training yeah and what it also does is it reminds someone thinking about this that the books you read about other cultures are actually books about the eyes of the person observing the other culture. And often we confuse, we conflate that. We say, oh, this is a book about another culture. Um, but it's really not. It's it's a book about Jack looking at the other culture. That That's what we see when we see ethnography. And, you know, uh, one of the, the greatest examples of this is the, the cornerstone of Japan studies, Ruth Benedict's Chrysanthemum and the Sword which 
you know, have you ever read any of the um, book reviews that came out after that? Yes, I have. They're fascinating. They all assume she did a study of Japan, but she didn't. She did a study of Japanese Americans in concentration camps in the desert. And But it's fascinating to look at how her view got constructed as Japan instead of what it is, a view of Japanese Americans in a terribly difficult situation, sort of kind of talking about their understanding of Japan. Um, and I think that's really important for people to keep in mind when they read about other cultures, that you're you're always reading the perspective of the author. You're not reading about the culture itself. Yeah, that's a really great point. Uh, so what's your next project going to be? What's your next novel, I guess, <laughs> will be about? Well, I'm going to write a sequel to this. Um, that That's next. Uh, I started on it already a little bit and then got kind of sidetracked. Um, I finished another book while I was writing this. I wrote another book that's kind of a, an intellectual memoir. Uh, it's called Embracing Uncertainty. And it, it, it gets into my thinking as an anthropologist and, and having you know spent a lot of time in Japan and also traveled to many other places. Um, it, it's more into what I think you can learn from studying other cultures and, and having the experience of being in other places. And so that came out over the summer. Um, and, uh, you know, basically I think probably the next project is really to try to um, take what I've done with, with the Jack character and develop it further and to develop my skill as a novelist further. That's really, I think, what will be the future for me. Yes, I'll be looking forward to reading it. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you for this wonderful conversation for this super interesting book. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your having me on. And uh, I've, I've enjoyed our conversation and, and hope people will find the book interesting. Yeah, definitely hope so. Uh, for our listeners to find out the rest of Jack Ridley's adventure, make sure you check out this new book, The Blood of Gutoku, a Jack Ridley mystery in Japan by John Trepagan. I am Jin Yi from New Books in Japanese Studies, and I will see you soon. <laughs>